Listening to According to Sam, episode 47. Right. Welcome to According to Sam, episode 47. Sorry, I'm so sorry it took me so long to get this uh, show put together. I had so much going on, um, and there's been so much going on in the news cycle, too. Uh, it's really uh, difficult to, to to take a bite and uh, pick something and, and kind of flush it out. I need to start doing these more regularly, which I commit to you I'm going to. Um, it's a one-man show right now, so I, I do apologize about taking so long getting this episode out, but I do think that I have a really good show for you today, and uh, thank you guys for joining me. Um, if you hadn't been following the podcast, you can do so on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, uh, just do a search for According to Sam with the number two. Also visit the website, according to Sam, the number two dot com uh, for the show archive. Um, so we have an ongoing investigation into the Russia investigation, as I told you, that uh, they're going to find out um, all the stuff that happened, uh, the uh, illegal predicate for spying on the Trump campaign and transition team. And uh, here's a clip about the uh, new news on that front, the um, Inspector General and Attorney General Barr are moving forward with uh, calling this a criminal investigation now, which gives them uh, the ability to uh, subpoena testimony and then also uh, grand jury material. In with NBC News confirming that an investigation into the origins of the Russia probe closely overseen by Attorney General William Barr, has now changed from an administrative review to a criminal investigation. The news was first reported by the New York Times. The review is being conducted by Connecticut U.S. Attorney John Durham. According to the Times, this move gives Durham the power to subpoena witness testimony and documents to convene a grand jury and to file criminal charges. The investigation has been going on for a long time. I told you uh, as soon as the um, Mueller hoax was over with that this was going to be the next phase. And uh, now the media is having uh, having to admit to it, which uh, most of this impeachment stuff has to do with uh, running um, offense uh, or defense, whatever you want to call it, basically trying to divert attention from this because they anticipated this uh, coming out. They weren't telling you about it on the mainstream news, but they knew that it was coming. And uh, they, this impeachment thing uh, was created to kind of divert attention on that uh, away from the uh, Russiagate investigation and kind of uh, have this impeachment uh, tool in their bag that they can use uh, in the media to to basically uh, change the narrative. I, I don't know if that really makes sense to you, and I, I'll flush it out a little bit more uh, later, but because I, I don't intend to talk about uh, the... Well, I, I am going to talk a little bit about the impeachment uh, thing and uh, Russiagate, and they all kind of uh, intertwine with one another. But what I wanted to talk about uh, today, I want to first start talking about one of my favorite books, Let's start there. So one of my favorite uh, fiction novels is 1984. Love this book. 
and read it for the first time in college and uh, I was blown away uh, by it and uh, the imagery and the way that uh, Orwell, Eric Blair, um, wrote about this um, uh, this dystopian society, uh, Oceana, that he lived in and uh, the fear that he lived uh, under uh, in this totalitarian society. And um, he writes from the point of view of the narrator, who is Winston, who's the guy who is involved in the whole story. Um, and Winston, in the beginning of the book, uh, he uh, commits the crime of buying a journal and having a journal. Um, that was something that was illegal in Oceania, in this totalitarian state, the simple act of keeping a journal, a document uh, of history, uh, of what you did, you know, day to day, that was illegal in Oceania. That's kind of how the book opens him kind of hiding his journal away from these cameras that he has inside of his uh, house in his dwelling, where he's being watched 24 seven on a daily basis. Um, I was fascinated with the book. I, 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 I love the book and I, I read it over and over again and you always get something else out of it. But uh, the major themes, the major themes are like right there in your face. You know, you get those right after reading it for the first time. And uh, the themes are is that uh, this is the future. Um, Orwell, Eric Blair wrote, wrote this book and uh we think in 1948 it was published in 49 and he died the year uh after that but um uh, that's how the book got its title uh 1984 uh, he was writing it in 48 and he took the 8 and the 4 and reversed them basically uh you know saying making a proclamation on the future that this is in the future and it is not uh it's dystopian but like most dystopian societies they always start off even the one that is being created today it starts off by uh an attempt to create a, a utopia but it, it's not a utopia it is a dystopia um what's that term that that mark levin uh, calls uh, liberal socialists. He calls them. Um, um, what is it? It's a utopian status. Status. So that's basically what he's talking about. Utopian status is this uh, phrase that Mark Levin uses. That's what Oceana was. It was run by the party. Uh, who were status? Everything was about the state and the and the party, as it's explained to Winston at the end of the book. And everybody's expendable. Uh, everything is expendable. Uh, the only thing that matters is, is the survival of the party. And uh, you know, George Orwell, Eric Blair, you know, talks about four different ministries. Um, in society, in the society of Oceania, and that is what keeps uh, the people in control because it's it's all about keeping the people of Oceania in control, mentally and physically. Um, he there's this one point in the book where 
Uh, Winston is looking down at this woman who's singing and she's uh, doing laundry. Um, and he looks at her and he says, the proles, the proletariat is what he's talking about. The, the workers, if these people would rise up, they could easily take over the party. But the party, this minority uh, who were controlling the people and uh, keeping them uh, from being free, uh, they were able to do so uh, by these four ministries uh, that basically controlled society. And uh, one of the ministries was the Ministry of Truth. And the Ministry of Truth uh, was responsible for Newspeak. And Newspeak is what saying the Ministry of Truth is. Its Ministry of Truth was not the Ministry of Truth. But uh, Newspeak changes uh, words and definitions. So the Ministry of Truth was actually the Ministry of Propaganda and Lies. Um, Winston working for the Ministry of Truth, he would go to work on a daily basis and he would get a... um, a order from uh, the the higher ups in the party telling him that uh, you need to scrub this event from history. So he goes through all of the books and and magazines and newspapers where there's uh, a reference to this event that he needs to scrub, and he erases it from history. Um, they, like I said, in the Ministry of Truth, they're also creating the new speak. Um, if there was a piece of propaganda that, uh, that they wanted to be promoted, it was done through the ministry of truth. The ministry of truth was basically the statement about the entire media complex, the, uh, the propaganda that worked on your mind was developed in the ministry of truth. And then you have the ministry of plenty. Our ministry of plenty uh, is very important. You need to understand because all of these ministries uh, have a reference to our current and modern day society. Really interesting thing that uh, Orwell was asked, Eric Blair was asked uh, how he came up with the concepts in 1984 and Animal Farm. He wrote Animal Farm uh, just a few years uh, before both these two are his masterpieces. He wrote tons of other stuff, essays. He was a, uh, reporter for the BBC for a long time, but, uh, animal farm and 1984 were written towards the end of his life. And then, then he died. Uh, but he was asked about how he came up with these concepts, uh, of, uh, uh, particularly 1984 in this totalitarian future. And he says that he just took the issues and the concepts that were being promoted by the Socialist Party in 1948 at that time, and he took those ideas to their natural conclusions, and that's how he came up with this uh, this society that he fictionalizes in this book that mirrors the society that we're in right now. I mean, the Ministry of Truth, deleting stuff from the public record, and uh, and like he says, you know, if if it's if there's no record of it, it's like it never happened. Uh, that can be done with the internet. It can be done with uh, websites where you just delete things from from a public record. Nobody goes to the library anymore. Um, it's fascinating how these uh, these ministries in the society that he fictionalizes has in common with the society that we live in today. Uh, really, you know, 
I'm f- almost 50 years old. I can remember when our society uh, did not mirror that society that is uh, fictionalized in 1984. And then slowly and incrementally, we've started to get more and more totalitarian, more and more, uh, lose more and more liberties. And I've watched that happen progressively. And and the character Winston in 1984, he actually comments on that. He says that I have no idea, you know, when this happened and how uh, it happened and what the event was that led us from being this free and open society where I could have a journal to where uh, we are this closed society where I can be, uh, which eventually happens to him at the end of the book, uh, arrested and tortured and sent to re-education because of the way I think. He says, I don't even know how this happened. And in my lifetime, I could say that, that I don't even know how this happened. It happened so subtly and so progressively that once we were this free society that now um, we're a society where uh, we're, you know, freely being watched and 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 followed on a daily basis. Our vocabulary is being restricted and uh, free speech is uh, being restricted um, I can totally identify with the character Winston in 1984. So the Ministry of Truth uh, was the propaganda media arm of the society. The Ministry of Plenty was, uh, was where, where goods were rationed to the people. So the people didn't get too decadent. Because <laughs> the last thing the party wants is for the people to get to be too prosperous and too decadent. So they were in a constant state of austerity and goods and uh, resources were rationed through the Ministry of Plenty. The Ministry of Plenty, again, Newspeak, uh, the Ministry of Plenty didn't have plenty. The Ministry of Plenty uh, had scarcity <laughs> and austerity. That's what the Ministry of Plenty had. So, so the Ministry of Plenty was set up. So we have the Ministry of Truth, uh, feeding you propaganda, working on your mind. The Ministry of Plenty uh, set up to uh, make sure that you don't become too decadent, where uh, you become, uh, you know, uh, too emboldened to uh, to challenge. You know, and you don't want to you don't want to starve the people either. You know, to where uh, they rise up in rebellion. You want to give them just enough. And 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 then take take it away, um, uh, you know, basically control uh, the the flow of of resources and wealth uh, are done through the ministry of plenty. That's what the ministry of plenty was. And my two favorites, the ministry of love. Now, the ministry of love was the domestic police force, homeland security, the jackboot thugs. <laughs> like I said, Winston at the uh, towards the end of the book, he's arrested, he's tortured, he is uh, sent to re-education. That's done in the Ministry of Love. <laughs> the Ministry of Love does all that. And then you had the Ministry of Peace. Now, if you are a quick learner, then you would know by what I told you the Ministry of Truth does uh, and what the Ministry of Plenty does and what the Ministry of Love does. If you're smart, then you would be able to figure out what the Ministry of Peace does. The Ministry of Peace was the war machine, the Pentagon. 
That's the what the Ministry of Peace was about. And that is a theme from the beginning to the end of the book. The fact that Oceania is at constant foreign war. In the beginning of the book, they're at war with Eurasia. And the Ministry of Truth through this propaganda arm is feeding propaganda about Eurasia to the people, uh, fostering their, their angers and their fears and their emotions, everything geared towards this common enemy that we all have to unite to fight. And it's Eurasia. And at the end of the book, they're all of a sudden fighting East Asia. And the change is so subtle Winston is there and everybody's uh, expressing their anger um, at at East Asia. And Winston, you know, he says, wow. And that's one of the another theme of the book, this two plus two equals four. Just, you know, the the fight for truth is such a central part of the book. And Winston says, wow, wow. I always thought we were at war with with Eurasia. And then. It comes out that, no, we were at war with East Asia, and we've always been at war with East Asia. Oh, yeah, I, I, I haven't read it uh, in a while. need to uh, pick it up again. Um, it's a, a really short book. I recommend it. You can uh, probably find a, a copy online. Uh, but we've always been at war with East Asia. That's the way I felt when... And it was first being promoted that ISIS in this war on terrorism was the biggest threat that we had to worry about. ISIS, where did this ISIS come from? You know, I mean, it was Al Qaeda that attacked us in 1993. That was the first time that they took credit for uh, attempting to blow up the World Trade Center in 1993, a truck bomb that didn't detonate. It was Al-Qaeda that bombed us in Yemen, the USS Cole. Al-Qaeda took responsibility for that. It was Al-Qaeda who we were told that hijacked planes and flew them into the World Trade Center and Flew it into the Pentagon. We were told that that was Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was our big enemy. So when Obama gets in and ISIS out of nowhere starts being our new enemy. And it's like, well, what happened to (laughs) Al-Qaeda? What happened to Al-Qaeda? Well, let's talk about where Al-Qaeda came from first and then we'll start talking about where ISIS came from. Now, before I explain where Al-Qaeda came from and where ISIS came from, I want to explain some uh, basic things about Islam. Now, Islam started in the 6th century in uh, present-day Saudi Arabia and Mecca. And uh, when Muhammad died... 
Um, he had a large group of followers in Mecca, his army. Uh, most of them uh, came from Medina. He went uh, to Medina for a short period of time and then came back and, and took over Mecca. And um, that's uh, where Islam started. And then when Muhammad died, his nephew, Ali, um, who was a direct descendant of Muhammad's. There were a faction of Muslims who believed that Ali should have uh, been the next leader of uh, the caliphate. And uh, Muhammad's right-hand man, this guy, Abu Bakr, uh, there was a faction that believed that uh, Abu Bakr, because he was Muhammad's lieutenant, uh, should have been the successor of the caliphate. So that is kind of where the beginning of the Sunni and Shia divide in Islam uh, started. It goes back to the 7th century when Muhammad died. Uh, Abu Bakr became the uh, the next ruler of the caliphate, but and he died. Um, Ali became the ruler, and then some of uh, Abu Bakr's uh, loyal loyalists ended up killing uh, some of Ali's family, who were direct descendants of Muhammad. And uh, this whole war between the Sunni and the Shia uh, evolved from that and uh, to, you know, Islam today, uh, 1400 years later, and those factions still exist. Um, some of the important things that uh, that they believe, you know, the first of all, there's the vast majority of Muslims on this planet are Sunni Muslims, about uh, 85%. And those Muslims are everywhere, in, in Turkey, in Saudi Arabia, in Indonesia, uh, all over the planet, uh, you'll find Sunni Muslims, about 85%. So only about 15% today, Shia Muslims, and you will find most of them, most of that 15% of Shia Muslims, in Iraq and Iran. Very important that you understand that. Um, so, uh, Iraq and Iran is where you'd find most of the Shia Muslims uh, on the planet today. And the Shia Muslims, they have a... Uh, a belief that all of the imams that are in Shia Islam have to be direct descendants of Muhammad even to this day because their allegiance goes back to um, to Ali, who is a direct descendant of Muhammad. So that's very important to, to the Shia, that their imams are direct descendants of Muhammad. The Ayatollah Khomeini, who, when he took over Iran in the Iranian Revolution, he claims to be a direct descendant of Muhammad. And the Ayatollah in in Iran uh, has kind of like adopted this Pope uh, type status in Shia Islam. It's very important that these imams 
and these people who are direct descendants of uh, Muhammad, so they say, are the leaders in Shia Islam. There's nothing like that in Sunni Islam, which is very important when the founder of ISIS, whose name is Abu Bakr, <laughs> when he tries to create a new Sunni caliphate and say that he is the leader of this new Sunni caliphate. That's where ISIS came from, but we're going to get there in just a minute. I'm just taking you through this little ride. Um, let's talk about where Al-Qaeda came from. Now, Al-Qaeda started as a Sunni group, Sunni, not Shia, called the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And the first clip that I'm going to play for you today is a clip of Hillary Clinton explaining where the Mujahideen came from and thereby where Al-Qaeda came from. Uh, here's Hillary Clinton. We also have a history of kind of moving in and out of Pakistan. I mean, let's remember here, the people we are fighting today, we funded 20 years ago. And we did it because we were locked in this struggle with the Soviet Union. They invaded Afghanistan, and we did not want to see them control Central Asia. And we went to work. And it was President Reagan, in partnership with the Congress, um, led by Democrats, who said, you know what? Sounds like a pretty good idea. Let's deal with the ISI and the Pakistani military, and let's go recruit these Mujahideen. And, that's great. Let's get some to come from Saudi Arabia and other places, importing their Wahhabi brand of Islam so that we can go beat the Soviet Union. And we, guess what? They retreated. They lost billions of dollars, and it led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So there's a, a very strong argument, which is wasn't a bad investment to end the Soviet Union, but let's be careful what we sow because we will harvest. So we then left. Wow. Wow. That's Hillary Clinton saying, you reap what you sow. We need to be careful what we reap because we reap what we sow. And we funded and created the Mujahideen and supported them to defeat the Russians. And out of the Mujahideen came Al-Qaeda. So we funded and supported Al-Qaeda from its inception. From its inception, Osama bin Laden was a leader of the Mujahideen and also Al-Qaeda. He broke off, um, declared a war, a jihad on the United States of America and went from being an ally to our enemy. How does that happen? How does that happen? Um, this is an interview that CNN did with Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. Um, and this was before 9-11, um, prior in, in 1997, this interview uh, took place uh, before 9-11, but Osama bin Laden had already issued this uh, fatwa, this declaration of war on the United States. Um, and CNN, even though he went from being this ally 
who we supported in Afghanistan, to all of a sudden uh, declaring war on the United States and being an enemy. Um, the you know uh, like the bombing and the attempted bombing of uh, the World Trade Center, the first one in '93. Uh, this interview that I'm getting ready to play. That CNN finds him in one of his lairs in Afghanistan in 1997 happens after they take credit for that attempted bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993. And this is the the Bill Clinton administration. Um, and CNN, the CIA is looking for him. The FBI is looking for him. He's on the terrorist watch list. He's gone from an ally that we supported with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to this guy who hates America, our biggest enemy. Everyone's looking for him after this uh, attempted terrorist attack in New York. And CNN is the one who finds them. Not the FBI doesn't find them. The CIA doesn't find them. CNN is the one who, that finds them, finds uh, Osama bin Laden and does an interview uh, with him. And this is a little bit of the interview that CNN does with Osama bin Laden. Now, the reason that I'm, I'm talking about all this is we're going to talk about ISIS in a minute. And I want you to start thinking along the lines that if we had something to do with the creation of Al Qaeda, could we have possibly had something to do with the creation of ISIS? <laughs> hmm. Possibly. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, this is an interview that CNN did with Osama bin Laden in his one of his caves, his lairs in Afghanistan in 1997. Now, take a listen. You have declared a jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? The U.S. government has committed acts that are extremely unjust, hideous, and criminal through its support of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And we believe the U.S. is directly responsible for those killed in Palestine, Lebanon, and Iraq. Due to its subordination to the Jews, the arrogance of the United States regime has reached the point that they occupied Arabia, the holiest place of the Muslims, who are more than a billion people in the world today. For this and other acts of aggression and injustice, we have declared jihad against the U.S. Is the jihad directed against the U.S. government? Uh, or United States troops in Arabia? What about U.S. civilians in Arabia or the people of the United States? We have focused our declaration of jihad on striking at the U.S. soldiers inside Arabia, the country of the two holy places, Mecca and Medina. In our religion, it is not permissible for any non-Muslim to stay in Arabia. Therefore, even though American civilians are not targeted in our plan, they must leave. We do not guarantee their safety. So that is an interview that CNN did, a little bit of an interview that CNN did in 1997 with Osama bin Laden. They went to Afghanistan, found him in one of his caves while the CIA, FBI, everyone's looking for him. CNN finds him, does this interview with him. Uh, this is after the 1993 attempted bombing of the World Trade Center and before the uh, 2001 9-11 uh, uh, attacks. Now, uh, remember, I want you to remember that uh, that Donald Trump, uh, prior to 
he predicted in one of his books that something like 9-11 would happen, and he even named Osama bin Laden. So take a listen to this clip. I've played it before, but uh, this is uh, Morning Joe commenting on this uh, piece of Donald Trump's book where he predicts 9-11 and uh, Osama bin Laden as being the culprit. BuzzFeed dug up an old quote from Donald Trump talking about a large-scale terror attack 19 months before 9-11. In his 2000 book, The America We Deserve, Trump wrote, I really am convinced we're in danger of the sort of terrorist attacks that will make the bombing of the 1993 Trade Center look like little kids playing with firecrackers. Trump also mentioned the mastermind of the attack, writing, quote, One day, we're told that a shadowy figure with no fixed address named Osama bin Laden is public enemy number one, and U.S. jet fighters lay waste to his camp in Afghanistan. He escapes back under some rock, and a few news cycles later, it's on to a new enemy and a new crisis. CNN found him. CNN wait, wait, found wait, exactly wait, where he wait. was. Mm-hmm. Okay, hold yeah. on a second. Mm-hmm. Is this really Trump before 9-11? Have you read this? It's 2000 in his book. Are we making this? Somebody, did you Nick. make this up, Mika? Nick. <laughs> I did. Did you Just make this up? Yeah, Nick, exactly. tell us it's over, right? Because Will you wrong stop? about everything. Mika, stop. God. I don't think it's over. What's, that, what's the rage here? Will you stop no, it's on cute. him? I think it's cute. Well, really quickly, though. I mean, so, Willie, that was... 2000. 2000. And a book he wrote in the year 2000. Yeah. Well, it was published in 2000. He could have written in 1999. For exactly. He might. So he named him. He named Donald Trump named Osama bin Laden in his book prior to 9-11 and said this major attack was going to come uh, and going to be blamed on Osama bin Laden, this shadowy figure uh, from his cave in Afghanistan. Uh, where CNN found him and did this interview. Um, anyone who had been paying attention and in that time um, knew that Saddam Hussein had uh, gone from this ally of ours in Afghanistan against the Russians under the Reagan administration and transformed into this great enemy of the United States of America who was committing terrorist attacks on America. Anyone could have uh, seen what was going on, who was paying attention. Again, Donald Trump, our current president, predicted this in his book. But someone else also predicted uh, a 9-11 style of attack before it happened and named Osama bin Laden, our former ally, um, in Afghanistan as uh, the culprit who was going to you know, get the blame for this major attack that was coming. And that person was a man by the name of William Cooper. Now, uh, Bill Cooper uh, had a pirate radio program. He kind of uh, was the precursor to podcasts and even like Alex Jones, conspiracy theories. And I hate using uh, that term because... Uh, it makes it seem like it's something that's not true. No, conspiracies happen. It's two or more people conspiring for a nefarious purpose. It happens all the time. Um, And Bill Cooper would tie these things together. He was actually killed by the police at his home in Arizona. But this is a broadcast uh, that he did in June of 2001, late June. It was just, you know, maybe 90 days before 9-11, and this is what Bill Cooper said. Take a listen. How about that? 
They're doing the same thing today with Osama bin Laden, and that's where I've been getting at. Can you believe what you have been seeing on CNN today, ladies and gentlemen? Can you believe it? (laughs) Supposedly, a CNN reporter found Osama bin Laden, took a television camera crew with him, went into Osama bin Laden's hideout, interviewed him and his top leadership, his top lieutenants and colonels and generals in their hideout. This is a CNN reporter with a camera crew. And he came out and told everybody, within three weeks, Osama bin Laden is going to attack the United States and Israel. Now, don't you think that's kind of strange, folks? You see, because the largest intelligence apparatus in the world, with the biggest budget in the history of the world, has been looking for Osama bin Laden for years and years and years, and can't find him. The FBI also, under the leadership of Louis Free, has been looking for Osama bin Laden for years and years and years and years and years and many years, and can't find him. Some doofus, jerk-off reporter with a camera crew bosses right into his hideout and interviews him. And you know what his budget is? (laughs) Zip, zilch, nothing. Now, that tells us two things. Either everyone in the intelligence community and all of the intelligence agencies of the United States government are blithering idiots and incompetent fools, including the entire apparatus of the FBI and all of their personnel, or they're lying to us. They're not looking for him at all. And the second is the truth. You see, the CIA created Osama bin Laden. They recruited him. They trained him. They found his leadership. They brought them all together. They showed him them how to fight the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And when that was over... They still continued to fund him and train him, and they're now using him to help bring about world government by making him the big boogeyman because they can't use Saddam Hussein anymore. Did you ever hear of Osama bin Laden? Before you heard of Saddam Hussein? We've always been at war with East Asia, folks. Osama bin Laden. It was after Saddam Hussein and Iraq were supposedly neutralized in the Gulf War. Just one boogeyman after another. After another, we've always been at war with East Asia, from Saddam Hussein to Osama bin Laden to back to Saddam Hussein again. A new boogeyman. But they're not looking for Osama bin Laden because I'm telling you right now. If I were the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, within two weeks I would have him dead or in custody without fail. Without fail. 
And Obama finds him in Pakistan and this uh, secret mission and they go in and kill him and then don't show anyone his body and then throw it in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And people believe this. People believe this craziness. If I had those assets and that money, he would be mine. I would own his terrorist ass within two weeks without fail. A reporter from CNN and his little camera crew got in to Osama bin Laden's secret hideout and conducted an interview. If you don't believe me, tune in to CNN. They're probably running it right now. I'll put it in the show notes for you people. And if you believe it, you are one of the stupidest jerks that ever lived on the face of this earth. And whatever is going to happen that they're going to blame on Osama bin Laden, don't you even believe it. Whatever's going to happen that they're going to blame on Osama bin Laden, don't you believe it? Uh, Bill Cooper said that three months before 9-11. You have Donald Trump writing his book, you know, a year before 9-11. Um, there's going to be a attack that makes the 1993 uh, attempted bombing of the World Trade Center look small. There's going to be a major attack. It's going to be Osama bin Laden, and then he's going to uh, go back to his cave in Afghanistan. Donald Trump wrote that in his book. Uh, you got Bill Cooper three months before uh, commenting on this CNN report where CNN finds Osama bin Laden in his cave and does an interview with him. He's saying whatever they're getting ready to do, don't and, and blame this on Osama bin Laden. Don't you buy into it. Anyone who's been paying attention to the 1993 attack, uh, the attack of the USS Cole, uh, the CNN interview, uh, anyone could have made these predictions. So it's not a big, you know, mystery that George Bush, the month before 9-11, got a confidential uh, CIA briefing titled Bin Laden Determined to Attack in the United States. That should have come to no surprise to anyone, especially anyone in government and in the intelligence community. You have this guy on this pirate radio uh, program saying it. You have Donald Trump putting it in his book. You know? And George Bush, a month before 9-11, got a confidential, and this is the one we know about because it was declassified. Who knows how many other times he was warned. We know uh, because of senior intelligence briefs that are uh, modeled uh, off of the presidential uh, uh, intelligence brief, we know that there were many other warnings. But we know for a fact that he was warned uh, in the presidential daily brief from the CIA on August 6, 2001. And the title of the brief he received was Ben Laden is determined to attack in the United States. The document says they're planning on hijacking airplanes. So 9-11 happens. And I've told you about how the anthrax attack happened a week after uh, 9-11. Uh, 9-11, this is next. Death to America, death to Israel. Allah is great. Were the letters that were in the envelopes with the anthrax that was mailed to first the media, the American media to build the hysteria. 
and then to two senators, Democratic senators, the leader of the Senate at that time, Tom Daschle, and the leader of the Judiciary Committee, um, uh, Patrick Leahy, uh, got some anthrax because they were trying to push through the Patriot Act and the Patriot Act needed to go through the Judiciary Committee first and then uh, Daschle needed to bring it to the floor, which is what they did immediately when the Senate was reopened after the FBI does their investigation on the anthrax they received. But they said that the anthrax came from Iraq. I've played the clips of uh, John McCain saying the anthrax was coming to Iraq. They tried to make a connection uh, with Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein and say that Saddam Hussein was giving anthrax to Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda was mailing it to the media and to the Senate. We know today that the anthrax did not come from Iraq, that it came from the United States of America. It was the AIM strand. Um, it was an American weapon. We know that today. Uh, but back then, Bush was telling us, no, uh, you know, this anthrax could be coming from Iraq. And then they did tell us that, you know, it. well, they didn't tell us. It, they uh, they concluded that it was the Ames strand. And then it, and everyone kind of dummied up. The uh, push to Iraq had already uh, started. So nobody uh, really even you know, found out or knew that, hey, you know, they said that this was coming from Iraq, but it's not coming from Iraq because the case was being made that Iraq had a stockpile of nuclear and biological weapons and uh, we needed to go into Iraq now um, we've gotten to Iraq and moved into Baghdad after uh, the initial invasion within like two weeks uh, only the most loyal members of uh, Saddam's Revolutionary Guard uh, were left fighting we easily beat them and then the entire world everyone who's following the build-up to the war in our Iraq was looking and seeing what's gonna happen next what are the Americans going to do next um, an interesting thing about Iraq, going back to this Shia Sunni divide, is like I've told you, you know, 80% of all Muslims on this planet are Sunni Muslims. 80%, 85%, I'm sorry, 85% of Muslims on the planet are Sunni Muslims. Uh, 15% are Shia Muslims, and those 15% of Shia Muslims live predominantly in Iraq and in Iran. Now, um, in the Iranian Revolution happened in 1979, and after the Iranian Revolution, that's when the Ayatollah Khomeini took over um, Iran. The Shah uh, left, and um, um, after that, they, this war started between Saddam Hussein and the uh, mullahs in Iran. Um, and Saddam Hussein in that war, the Reagan administration was funding Saddam Hussein and giving him weapons. So these weapons that supposedly, uh, Saddam Hussein had were weapons that, that he got from us that he used, uh, to fight Iran in that war. Uh, really interesting thing that a lot of people don't know and don't put together is that the United States was also in that war with Saddam Hussein and the mullahs. The United States, the Reagan administration, was also giving weapons to Iran. That's how Iran-Contra 
uh, that's how Iran is in Iran Contra. That's what it's about. It's about sending weapons to Iran. There's some interesting uh, backstory on that and why exactly uh, the Reagan administration was uh, sending weapons to Iran. And I'm not going to talk about it here, but uh, the Reagan administration was sending weapons to Iran and they were sending weapons to uh, to Saddam Hussein. Uh, Saddam Hussein, the Ba'ath Party in Iraq, uh, representing Sunni Islam, fighting against the mullahs representing uh, Shia Islam in Iran. So uh, Bush said that uh, that he had uh, those weapons and we needed to go in uh, to Iraq. And that was the reason that he gave that he went, needed to go into Iraq. Now, so 80 percent of uh, Muslims in the world are Sunni Muslims. Eighty five percent of uh, Muslims in the world are uh, uh, Sunni Muslims. Fifteen percent are Shia Muslims. But the majority of those 15 percent. Uh, live in I- Iraq and Iran. Now, uh, in Iraq, um, uh, 70% of the population of Iraq during uh, Saddam's reign were Shia Muslims. And 30% were Sunni Muslims. And Saddam Hussein, although he was very secular in his uh, outlook of the world, that's why uh, that's why when they tried to make this relationship with Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda, uh, it was ridiculous to people who understood Saddam Hussein and understood Al Qaeda because Al Qaeda had set themselves up as a uh, very uh, religious Wahhabi um, Islamic fundamentalist group. And Saddam Hussein didn't give, he didn't care about any of that stuff, that fundamentalist Islam stuff, but he was a Sunni Muslim. And, um, so, uh, the Ba'ath party, his ruling Ba'ath party ruled over the majority, uh, Shia in Iraq and they treated the Shia like second class citizens. The Ba'ath party did. And, uh, if you weren't a member of the Ba'ath Party, you weren't allowed to work in the bureaucracy or for the universities or for uh, the oil and gas industry. You couldn't work uh, for uh, the military or the police force. Everything that was done in Iraq under Saddam Hussein was done through his ruling Ba'ath Party. And you couldn't be a Ba'athist unless you were a Sunni Muslim. So they treated the Shia like second-class citizens. So when the United States goes in and and they topple Saddam Hussein, pull down the statue, and uh, all those iconic, uh, you know, scenes of the United States here, the uh, old uh, regime of Saddam Hussein is gone. We have taken control. After all of that, everyone's looking at the United States at what comes next. What are you going to do next? You remember that Colin Powell had this uh, private meeting in the Oval Office with George Bush prior to the invasion. And Colin Powell was the one who told George Bush, you got to go to the Security Council. You got to go to the U.N. Uh, Colin Powell was the general uh, during the Gulf War under Bush's father. And they declined to go into Baghdad uh, because he told uh, uh, George Bush the son George Bush as Secretary of State, um, it's a fragile piece of crystal. It's a fragile piece of crystal, and if you break it, you own it. It's the pottery barn rule. 
And what he meant by that is that these factions, these Sunni and Shia factions, uh, it, they were so uh, hostile towards one another, and 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 their war and that goes back uh, over a thousand years. That the stability that is in the Middle East right now is very fragile, very fragile. And if you move this one jenga piece, it could have turmoil throughout the whole region. It's a fragile piece of crystal. So you remember that that Bush, the father. And he was acting with the UN, the Security Council, sanctioned uh, when he went to go kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait and back to Baghdad. He declined to go into Baghdad and remove Saddam Hussein because it's a fragile piece of crystal. He uh, understood, um, and I think that being the UN, being uh, you know with the UN and these other nations. Uh, as well, I don't think that they would have even supported going in uh, in the Gulf War and removing Saddam Hussein. I don't even know if it's something that he could have done. But the reason that they, they didn't do it is because it's a fragile piece of crystal. If you break it, you own it. So and the the 2003 war, when Bush goes in and they take over the country, everyone's looking at Bush and looking and saying, what are you going to do next? What's next? How are you going to keep this together and not fulfill uh, what everybody has said is going to happen? How are you going to keep that from happening? And the president's envoy, uh, led by the name, but led by a man named Paul Brimmer, came into Iraq. And one of the first things he did, um, he says that he did this by himself. He wasn't taking orders from Washington, from Bush or from Cheney, from anyone that Paul Brimmer made this decision by himself. And he issued the debathification order. <laughs> now, the debathification order was the dumbest thing that anyone could have done in all of human history. And that's probably an exaggeration. If I could, you know, take a moment to think, I can think of something that someone that has done that is dumber than that. But it would take me a while because that was a really, really, really dumb thing, the debathification order. Because what the debathification order did is it said anyone who had previously worked for the Ba'ath Party, these Sunni Muslims who worked in administration, bureaucracy, in the oil and gas industry, for the universities, on the police force, uh, in the military, anyone who worked for the, uh, the ruling Ba'ath Party previously before the United States came in could not work in the new government, could not have any, uh, any uh, part in the rebuilding of the new Iraq. They lost their pensions. Their lives were pretty much over. <laughs> With the debathification order. And that's how the insurgency started. The insurgency started with disenfranchised Sunni Muslims saying that these people have come in and basically uh, flipped our lives upside down and we have nothing now. So they started fighting. They started fighting the uh, Americans and the contractors. They uh, started uh, 
using improvised explosive devices. They started, uh, you know, uh, firing uh, onto military convoys with uh, rocket uh, propelled grenades. Uh, it was guerrilla warfare. They just started taking the fight to the Americans because the Americans had uh, turned their lives upside down. Um, and then you had the things like Abu Ghraib come out and it just intensified uh, other Sunni Muslims, the Mujahideen from Afghanistan, uh, Sunni Muslims from all over the world decided to come to Iraq, to come into Iraq and fight the Americans. And then the Shia, they said, well, we're going to fight the Americans, too. They said that, you know what? I know that we've hated you Sunnis for a long period of time, but we're going to help you Sunnis fight the Americans as well. And then we can go back to fighting each other and hating each other after the Americans are out. But we have a common enemy now. So then the Shia started in on the insurgency and started fighting the Americans. And then Iran started sending some warriors in from uh, from uh, Iran to, to help out the Shia to fight the Americans. <laughs> that's how the war started. That's what, you mean, that's what happened in Iraq. The two fights for Fallujah, those are Sunni Muslims in Fallujah. The fight for Najir, uh, Najaf, in the uh, southern part of Iraq, those are Shia. And that's why people say that Iran uh, was, the, was the big winner in uh, the whole war is because uh, the Ayatollah in Iran is kind of like this, you know, this pope figure in, uh, in Shia Islam, a direct descendant from Muhammad. So uh, when the Shia, because you're bringing in democracy, what is democracy? Democracy is the vote for the per people. You got 70% Shia in Iraq. Well, how do you think the vote's going to go? The vote went exactly how you would expect it to go when you have 70% Shia. Once everything got calmed down and you start having votes, bringing in the election, then, uh, then people voted the Sunni out. They have the vote now. And the Shia control the Sunni and the Shia by virtue of, of their religion, they look back at Iran. They uh, are loyal to Iran because they're Shia. I mean, does this make sense to you? So I know that I'm uh, skipping over a lot because there's so much uh, to tell, but um, in 2006, those 2006 congressional elections, uh, George Bush got his butt kicked. Republicans got their butts kicked. They lost both houses of the Senate and Democrats had a 60 seat majority. I mean, both houses of Congress and Democrats had a, a 60 seat majority in the Senate. At that point, at the end of 2006, George Bush was essentially a lame duck. The war in Iraq was the biggest issue in that election. Three years. War started in 2003. This is in 2006. George Bush got his butt handed to him in the 2006 congressional elections. He fires Dom Rumsfeld. And then uh, Secretary Gates comes in as the new uh, defense secretary. And they initiate this surge plan. 
Now, what was the surge? The surge was to send another surge of troops uh, under uh, the general was David Petraeus, sent another surge of troops, about 20,000 more troops to Iraq to finally put down the insurgency. Now, you remember before the war started, um, Let's play this clip of General Shinseki. Uh, General Shinseki was uh, in a congressional hearing and they were trying to, this was before the war started. This was in February of 2003. They were trying to assess uh, just uh, what it was going to take to remove Saddam Hussein in power. This is Congress. How much money is it going to cost? How many men uh, are we going to need to send there? to to handle this mission of removing Saddam Hussein and keeping peace uh, in Iraq. And let's remember what General Shinseki said. Chairman, General Shinseki, uh, could you give us some ideas to the magnitude of the Army's force requirement uh, for an occupation of Iraq following a successful completion of, of the war? Uh, in specific numbers, I would have to uh, uh, rely on uh, combatant commanders' uh, exact requirements, but I think... How about a range? Uh, I would say that uh, what's been uh, mobilized to this point, something on the order of several hundred thousand uh, uh, soldiers or... 200,000. 200,000 soldiers is what uh, Shinseki said. Uh, This is a four-star general who was asked this question by Congress before we went in, and he was butchered by Rumsfeld and and Wolfowitz but for saying, no way are we going to need a force that big. And they didn't send the force that big initially. They didn't really need it if they would have made the right decisions. They easily took over Iraq with the force that they had. Uh, But the debathification order was the stupidest thing that they could have done. And then the insurgency started and they needed it. I mean, some people people think that that's a mistake. Now, I don't think it's a mistake. I go back to this problem of the lack of debt uh, and this article or this uh, document that I've talked to you about many times before. For life after debt, how they viewed the lack of debt as a problem. You needed the the insurgency to start before the war machine started. So they didn't send enough troops in the first place, and that was a huge criticism of Bush and his failed policy throughout the three years of the war when he lost the congressional election in uh, 2006. He didn't send enough troops. So they do the surge policy. They send a uh, another 20,000 troops under uh, Petraeus and through 2006 and 2008, this surge po- policy began to work. More troops began to stabilize um, Iraq. Uh, the insurgent violence uh, began to subside. So. And then you had uh, elections, and as everyone uh, could have predicted, the Shia uh, were the predominant uh, ruling uh, people in Iraq at that time. They had the numbers up to 70%. They had uh, free and fair elections. They controlled Iraq at that time. So what did the Shia start doing? The Shia start treating the Sunni like second class. And the tables have turned. 
And at this time, as you know, you're getting between 2006 and 2008, you're getting into the 2008 elections and uh, Barack Obama is going to be president in 2009. Uh, the new president of, of Iraq at that time uh, was a, a man by the name of uh, Nori uh, Amaliki. Um, and... Nori al-Maliki was a Shia Muslim. I have a clip here that we're going to play in a moment. Let's listen to uh, Obama. So when Obama was running in 2008 in, in the primary, he was running against Hillary Clinton, who voted for the war in Iraq. And he used that against her over and over again. She voted for the war in Iraq. Uh, she cannot uh, be trusted. Even voters, that was the biggest thing in that, that you voted for the war in Iraq. Uh, we're not voting for you. Was, I mean, that was the biggest thing that was uh, preventing Hillary Clinton from getting the nomination that year over Barack Obama. He said that 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 he was always against the war in Iraq, even though he wasn't in the Senate. He didn't have the opportunity to take the vote. Uh, he says that he was always against the war in Iraq and Hillary Clinton voted for it. Now, just remember that. Um, here are some clips of Barack Obama uh, promising that when he gets in, he's going to remove all the troops from Iraq. Now, he didn't make this decision. You got to understand the status of forces agreement. They, when uh, Bush went over to Iraq, I think that it was in 2007 when the guy threw the shoes at him and almost beamed him in the head. Um, he was there signing the status of forces agreements with uh, Amaliki. Um, and the status of forces agreement agreed that that uh, the the United States would leave Iraq in uh in 2009 or 2010 so obama made all these promises to get out of iraq but bush agreed to get out of iraq before obama even was even sworn in so let's just listen to some clips of obama promising to get us out of iraq and when i listen to mothers and fathers all across the country they are telling me it's time for us to come home i'm proud of the fact that i put forward a plan in january that mirrors what Congress ultimately adopted. And it says there's no military solution to this. We've got to have a political solution, begin a phased withdrawal, and make certain that we've got benchmarks in place so that the Iraqi people can make a determination about how they want to move forward. How do we pull out now? Senator Obama, how do we pull out now? <laughs> Look, I, I oppose this war from the start uh, because I anticipated that we would uh, be creating the kind of sectarian violence that we've seen and that it would distract us uh, from the war on terror. Right, so it was necessary. I'm, I'm going to get to the question, Anderson. Uh, at this point, I think we can be as careful getting out as we were careless getting in. But we have to send a clear message to the Iraqi government, uh, as well as to the surrounding neighbors, that there is no military solution to the problems that we face in Iraq. We just heard a White House spokesman, Tony Snow, uh, excuse the fact that the Iraqi legislature went on vacation for three weeks because it's hot in Baghdad. Well, let me tell you, it is hot for American troops who are over there with 100 pounds worth of gear, and that kind of irresponsibility is not helpful. So we have to begin a phase withdrawal, have our combat troops out by March 31st of next year, and initiate the kind of diplomatic surge 
that is necessary in the surrounding region to make sure that everybody is carrying their weight. And that is what I will do on day one as President of the United States if we have not done it uh, in the intervening months. As President, I want us to fight on the right battlefield. And what that means is getting out of Iraq and refocusing our attention on the war that can be won in Afghanistan. And that also will allow us to free up the kinds of resources that will make us safer here at home because we'll be able to invest in port security, chemical plant security, all the critical issues that have already been discussed. Pertaining to the subject of the votes and the authorization, Senator Obama, this is a question I've been meaning to ask you since, I guess, the night this occurred. Why did it take so long to hear how you were going to vote on the subject of that war supplemental on May 24th? We didn't learn until that evening when you actually cashed your vote. Why is that the case? Well, because the fact is that you know, it is difficult to send a message to the president who has been so obstinate for so long. All of us on this stage uh, want to make sure that our troops are funded. And all of us believe that we need to be orderly and careful in bringing them out. Uh, my hope was that we would start seeing some progress uh, among the Republicans where they would begin to agree with us on a timetable to withdraw. Uh, we have convinced some people, including some folks on this stage, uh, that this was a mistake and that it was important for us to start drawing troops down. Uh, but apparently we have not convinced enough Republicans. And at that point, it was my belief that the only way we could send a strong signal to the president to make sure that he came back to the table uh, was to vote no on that supplemental. But understand this, Keith, unless we can change the minds of some additional Republicans who are responsible for continuing to hand the keys of the car to the president on this issue. Uh, we are going to have to wait until I am president of the United States. And when I do, I promise you my first act will be calling together the Joint Chiefs of Staff and give them a mission to bring our troops home so that we can start stabilizing Iraq, but also focus on the war on terrorism that's out there right now. If we have not begun a withdrawal by the time I'm sworn into office, uh, then the next task is to call together the Joint Chiefs of Staff and to give them the mission, which is to begin a orderly phased withdrawal so that we can begin the diplomacy that uh, Joe and, and Bill and others are talking about. You know, I'm happy to have this discussion again, uh, Bill. I think it is important uh, to tell the American people the truth. Now, the military commanders indicate that they can safely get combat troops out at a pace of one to two brigades a month. That is the quickest pace that we can do it safely. And I've said I will begin immediately and we will do it as rapidly as we can. The overall strategy is failed because we have not seen any change in behavior among Iraq's political leaders. And that is the essence of what we should be trying to do in Iraq. That's why I'm going to bring this war to a close. That's why we can get our troops out, our combat troops out within 16 months. So, so the notion that somehow because we've gone from horrific violence to just intolerable levels of violence, and that somehow that justifies George Bush's strategy is absolutely wrong, and I'm going to bring it to a halt when I'm President of the United thank States. Thank you, Senator. We were in New Hampshire together, and I asked the three of you if you would pledge to have all troops out of Iraq by the end of your first term. All three of you said we will not take that pledge. I'm hearing something much different tonight. Oh, no, nothing no, different. no, 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 this is nothing different. different. I, I want to make sure. <laughs> No, no, no. I, I think this is important because it was reported as if uh, we were suggesting that we would continue a war until uh, 2013. Your question was, could I guarantee all troops would be out of Iraq? I have been very specific in saying that 
We will not have permanent bases there. I will end the war as we understand it in combat missions. Senator Obama. John, what, what I've said, and I've said repeatedly, is I want to be as careful getting out as we were careless getting in, but I want to make sure that we get all our combat troops out as quickly as we can safely. Uh, now, the estimates are maybe that's two brigades per month. At that pace, it would be sometime in 2009. Can you give us some sense of when you might start uh, redeployments out of Iraq? Well, I've said uh, during the campaign, and I uh, stick to this commitment, that as soon as I take office, I will call in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, my national security apparatus, and we will start uh, executing a plan uh, that draws down our troops. I know that was a lot of clips because <laughs> Obama said that so much. And I wanted to play uh, those because, you know, they're different contexts in uh, the way that he said it. But he was consistent you know, throughout that he plans on bringing all the troops home as soon as he got elected. And, but again, it wasn't his decision. Uh, this was a decision that the... Uh, Bush administration had made with the Iraqi government prior to Bush leaving the status of forces agreement. And the reason that uh, they did that is because uh, Iran doesn't want uh, the United States there uh, right now. Right now, as uh, Donald Trump is moving troops out of uh, northern Syria, he wants to keep them in Iraq and, and have them fall back in Iraq. And to this day. 2019, the Iraqi government is saying, no, we are not going to give the American a military approval to stay in Iraq. Why? Because they're loyal to Iran. Why? Because they're Shia Muslims. Now, when Obama came in and he was handed this situation, he was told, told that Maliki and this new Shia government, that they were persecuting, persecuting the Sunnis and treating them like second-class citizens, and uh, and it was gonna it was gonna create a larger civil war if these Shia Muslims, who are uh, now the majority in control, were persecuting and treating the uh, minority uh, Sunni like second-class citizens. He was warned about this. Here's a clip from Time that talks about. Trump or talks about Obama being warned that Maliki was persecuting the Sunnis, the Sunni Muslims of Iraq, and it was going to turn into a larger civil war. Now, remember, the Shia only make up 15 percent of all Islam. The majority of, uh, of Islam are Sunni Muslims throughout the whole world. So if this becomes some huge, large thing between the Shia and the Muslims, the Sunni they have the ability to call in reinforcements, other Sunnis from all over, from Turkey, from Indonesia, come on in and help us fight this fight against the Shia. Now that the Americans are gone, take a listen to this clip. The calls for Nori al-Maliki to step down grew louder Thursday, with critics saying it's increasingly clear the prime minister can't stabilize Iraq. We built the army from the ground up uh, and we based it on merit. We left. He fired those people. He started putting in people with cronyism, things like that. What Maliki has done is he's uh, politicized the military and militarized the politics. With the Iraqi army abandoning posts, Sunni Islamist militants and ISIS swept through several northern cities this month. 
The Wall Street Journal reports U.S. lawmakers are now pressuring Obama to pressure Maliki to step down. Maliki has been widely criticized for the Shiite-led government's oppression of Sunnis, but he announced Wednesday he would not step down as a condition for getting the U.S. airstrikes he wants against ISIS. The conflict is notoriously difficult for President Obama diplomatically, militarily, politically, basically in most every way possible as civil war threatens Iraq. So I haven't even told you yet uh, about uh, ISIS. I mean, but just from what I've told you so far, would you guess that ISIS are Sunni Muslims or Shia Muslims? <laughs> of course they're Sunni. Of course they're Sunni. Because <laughs> they're, 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 gosh, 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 there's so much. Uh, so much. Of course they're Sunni. <laughs> so the surge, when the surge happens in uh, 2006, 2007, uh, Bush, uh, under the new uh, Secretary of Defense, Gates, uh, and the General Petraeus sends 20,000 more Americans into Iraq to pull, put down the, the violence uh, and the insurgents. Then the Sunni Muslims that were part of the insurgency, these terrorist fighters who were former military and police in the Ba'ath Party in Iraq who didn't have lives anymore, didn't have anything they could do but wage jihad. That was their lives. They had only known war and military their whole lives. And now the Americans are sending a larger force in. We're not going to be able to to fight this uh, larger force with our guerrilla warfare. So a lot of these Sunni Muslims who were fighting the insurgency when this surge started, they went to Syria. They went to Syria, across the northern border of Iraq into Syria for refuge against the surge of Americans that were coming into Iraq. Went to Syria. And these terrorist military men who had been fighting the Americans in Iraq in an insurgent guerrilla warfare, when they got into Syria, uh, who did they, I mean, they, they, all they knew is fighting and, and, and doing war their whole lives. What was going on in Syria at that time? When well, Syria, there was a revolution going on and there was a group trying to overthrow the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad. Bashar al-Assad is what? Alawite. The Alawites are what? Shia. <laughs> the Alawites are Shia. So uh, the Shia Muslims are running Syria at that time. And the rebels who are fighting in the Syrian revolution trying to overthrow him are Sunni Muslims. And their group, the group that's trying to overthrow Bashar al-Assad is called the Free Syrian Army, the FSA, the Free Syrian Army. So when these Sunnis from Iraq that are being persecuted by the Shia that now run Iraq, these military warriors, when they go into Syria across the border, 
they join the FSA and start fighting Bashar al-Assad, another Shia Muslim who they can't stand because he's a Shia Muslim, another Shia Muslim who's aligned to Iran. Bashar al-Assad is aligned to Iran because he's a Shia Muslim. So when these Sunnis from Iraq, who have been fighting the Americans in Iraq, going to Syria, they join the FSA, the Sunni organization, fighting to overthrow another Shia uh, ruler in uh, the region. And then other Sunni Muslims from around the world, from Afghanistan, from uh, Saudi Arabia, from England. (laughs) They come to Syria and they join the FSA and fight the FSA. You have Al-Qaeda fighting with the FSA because Al-Qaeda is Sunni. You have Al-Nusra Front, Sunni fighting with the FSA. And these rebels in Syria are joined together with all these terrorist organizations, Sunni terrorist organizations in Syria, and they're fighting Bashar al-Assad. Now, Obama does what he says that he's going to do when he gets into office. He, uh, he maintains the status of forces agreement, and he removes American troops from Iraq, even though he was told, you know, that Maliki, uh, this new Shia prime minister in Iraq, uh, was a bad guy and uh, he should try to renegotiate uh, the status of forces forces agreement and leave uh, some troops there. He pulls troops out of Iraq. Now, I don't have a problem with Obama pulling the troops out of Iraq and and getting us out of there. But it's what Obama did next that created the big problem. Now, what Obama did next, he took the side of the rebels in Syria. He said that Bashar al-Assad must go regime change in Syria. He said Assad must go. And then he started funding and supporting the FSA with logistics and with uh, and with uh, funding and military equipment. Obama started supporting the FSA 100 percent. And then his intelligence agencies tell them, well, look, this group is forming out of the FSA, uh, this group called ISIS which is a uh, militant terrorist group, and they're forming out of this Sunni group in the FSA that is fighting Bashar al-Assad. They are forming in Syria as this, this, this big terrorist group that we need to worry about, and they're calling themselves ISIS. What does ISIS stand for? ISIS stands for Islamic State in Syria. Islamic State in Syria. Now, Obama often called them ISIL, which means the Islamic State in Levant. What does Levant mean? Levant is uh, an area of land that we can establish our caliphate. So uh, ISIS was saying that our new caliphate is, our new Levant is here in northern Iraq and Syria. We're creating a new Levant, a new caliphate, a new Sunni caliphate here 
in Syria and northern Iraq. And then they got a bunch of Toyota trucks. Nobody knows where they got all these Toyota trucks from. They got a fleet of Toyota trucks. And they took those Toyota trucks back into Iraq after the Americans had left. And they took over northern Iraq. They took over northern Iraq. That's where ISIS came from. That's where ISIS came from. Now, when Obama was warned, when they were in their infancy, when they were just forming out of the FSA into this militant terrorist group, Obama was warned uh, about them that, hey, you know, Al-Qaeda's part of the FSA. Al-Nusra Front is part of the FSA. You have all of these terrorists in this group that you're supporting. Obama was warned. And this is what Obama said. Tony. Uh, You say you've been warning about it, but in January, President Obama told The New Yorker magazine's David Remnick that ISIS, which was then still considered a part of al-Qaeda fighting in Syria, was like a JV basketball team. He said, quote, the analogy we use around here sometimes, and I think is accurate, is if a JV team puts on Lakers uniforms, that doesn't make them Kobe Bryant. Just how badly did President Obama underestimate the threat of ISIS? Wow. Wow, this is when ISIS was in their infancy uh, in Syria. Uh, they were just forming. Obama's being warned. And just because they wear Laker uniforms doesn't make them Kobe, is what Obama said about ISIS. And then he proceeds to continue to fund them through the FSA and Syrian rebels that are fighting Assad in Syria. He had a policy that Assad must go. That was his policy. I have a clip here of Obama. Um, Where is that clip of Obama saying Assad must go? Hold on. I think this is it. Take a listen. Well, the success of the extremist ISIS forces is pulling the Obama administration deeper into the Syrian civil war. ISIS now holds territory across northern Syria, and now that it's a regional threat, Mr. Obama is reversing himself and asking Congress for half a billion dollars to support moderate Syrian rebels who oppose ISIS. Moderate, moderate Syrian rebels. Uh, he starts asking for money to support after ISIS gets out of hand, after uh, I guess that they started uh, shooting the ball like Kobe. <laughs> he goes to Congress. This is before he sends troops in there. We're going to get to that in a moment because we're going to talk about the Kurds and the Kurdish, Kurdish region and uh, all of that. But So Obama asked uh, Congress for money to support moderate rebels, okay? We're going to talk about them in just a moment, but here's more of this clip. That's not the clip I Air wanted Senior to play, White though. House correspondent Bill Plant. The administration's request for new arms and aid to the Syrian rebels is an about-face amid growing alarm over the gains made by Islamist forces in Iraq and Syria. President Obama has long been reluctant for the U.S. to become more involved in Syria. Just last week, he told Nora O'Donnell on CBS This Morning why he has resisted pressure to arm the rebels. Uh, The notion that they were in a position suddenly uh, to overturn uh, not only Assad, but also ruthless, uh, highly trained jihadists, uh, if we just sent uh, a few arms, uh, is a fantasy. The $500 million request would fund U.S. training of rebels in neighboring countries, most likely Jordan. 
It would supply small arms, but not the anti-aircraft missiles the rebels are seeking. The president fears those could easily fall into the hands of extremists. Now listen to that right there. That uh, that he knows that these the affiliations uh, of these group of rebels in Syria uh, is so loose that these anti-aircraft miss- missiles could uh, fall into the hands of extremists. But uh, the other uh, uh, supplies and uh, and uh, tools that the Americans are uh, uh, supplying to the rebels, he's you know not so concerned with those falling into the hands of extremists but he's aware enough not to give them anti-aircraft missiles uh, because he knows that these affiliations um, have some affiliation with terrorists and he knows that listen it would supply small arms but not the anti-aircraft missiles the rebels are seeking the president fears those could easily fall into the hands of extremists So he fears that they can easily fall into the hands of extremists. This is a clip from a violent video where Syrian rebels are executing um, their prisoners. And I want you to take a listen to this clip. Hey, Joe. Yeah, it's not our job to tell you how you should react to this video, but you may feel it is very graphic, something that you don't want children to see. We just want to give you that warning now ahead of time and also tell you that this was that the New York Times is reporting that this video was given to them by a former rebel who was disgusted at what he saw. The men are stripped of their shirts and kneeling. The New York Times says this video was just smuggled out of Syria and shows Syrian rebels, Syrian rebels. Not the ones that Obama is uh, sending supplies to, of course. <laughs> these are some other guys, but I just want to make sure you understand that these are these are. This is not ISIS that we're talking about in this video. We're talking about the Syrian rebels that are trying to remove Bashar al-Assad from power. Rebel commander executing captured Syrian soldiers in April. It's shocking. But some lawmakers say they've seen classified reports that suggest half of the rebels are extremists. The briefings I've received... This is Congress. They said that they've seen briefings that half of these rebels who Obama is supporting, they're extremists. Wow. Gotten different ones or inaccurate briefings. Is right at 50%. Secretary of State John Kerry argues it's as low as 15%. If it's, if it's 5%. What are we giving them weapons for? What are we giving them uh, supplies for? Why are we supporting them? If it's 2%, why? Secretary of State John Kerry argues it's as low as 15%. There is a real moderate opposition that exists. Kerry and Republican John McCain both cited reporting from an analyst who's traveled to Syria. Dr. Elizabeth Obegi. She works with the Institute of War. She's fluent in Arabic. Apart from the city's Assad still rules, Elizabeth Obegi says there are distinct areas where moderate rebels are in control and can keep weapons out of the hands of extremists. I travel with groups where we actually can kind of identify the more extremist checkpoints and simply move around wow. them into areas. Wow, where- that's the Obama administration justifying giving them weapons. The, the truth of the matter is, is that they had no idea the percentage 
of rebels that were legitimate rebels that are involved in the revolution to throw overthrow Assad and these uh, terrorist uh, rebels that uh, eventually became ISIS and, and where ISIS grew because they're interchangeable. They're all Sunni Muslims and they all have the same objectives, getting rid of the Shia in Syria and getting rid of the Shia in, um, in Iraq and creating their Sunni caliphate, their Sunni Levant. Now, here is Obama a couple of times uh, where he uh, articulated his policy in Syria. This is Obama with, um, with the uh, Turkish prime minister and Turkey and Obama, because uh, Turkey had the same policy um, in Syria as well. Turkey, Sunni, uh, Ottoman caliphate. They want Assad gone. So Turkey wanted Assad gone, too. This is Obama doing a press conference with uh, Turkey. The policy Assad must go. In Syria, the only way that the civil war will end, and in a way so that the Syrian people can unite against ISIL, is an inclusive political transition to a new government without Bashar Assad, a government that serves all Syrians. I discussed this with our Gulf Cooperation Council partners at Camp David and during my recent call with President Putin. President Putin? Well, why is he discussing this with President Putin? And what does Russia have to do with this? We'll talk about that in a moment, but I just wanted you to notice this, that he's saying that his policy, uh, the policy of the Obama administration, is that Assad must go, a transition away from Assad, and I explained this to Vladimir Putin. What, what's Putin's policy? You've told us your policy. What, do you people know what Putin's policy is? We'll talk about that again in a moment. Cooperation Council partners at Camp David and during my recent call with President Putin. I made it clear the United States will continue to work for such a transition. The United States, his administration, will continue to work for such a transition. What's the transition? That Assad must go. I've told Putin this. And... A glimmer of good news is, I think, an increasing recognition on the part of all the players in the region that given the extraordinary threat that ISIL poses, uh, it is important for us to work together as opposed to at cross purposes. So, and, and look, so he's using ISIS, who he said was a JV team, and I guess now they are a significant threat. They're Kobe now, uh, but at first they were a JV team, and now they're this significant threat that he can use to push forward his policy, and his policy is what? He states in the beginning of this clip, Assad must go. Now, why is this uh, of interest to Russia? You take a look at a map, um, and if I mean, I'll, I'll say this if you want to take a look at a map uh, later, but I want you to look at a map because it's very important that you just type in the Black Sea, and then from the center of the Black Sea, you go down south, and that's where Turkey is. Uh, Turkey is a really interesting trivia question. Uh, which city in the world is on two continents? There's only one. The answer to that question is Istanbul. Istanbul is uh, former Constantinople. Constantinople was taken over by the Ottoman Turk Empire. Uh, that is where uh, Turkey uh, comes from. Uh, the Ottoman Turk Empire 
and Istanbul is in Europe. And then there's a bridge that crosses over the Black Sea and connects the city in Asia. Um, in the middle of the Black Sea, like I said, you go south. That's Turkey. Uh, you can go under that bridge and go out into the Mediterranean. Uh, and there is two two at least two there may be a few more uh black sea uh fleet russian naval fleet bases it's called the black sea fleet the russian fleet and uh, they have had these bases for years the one in sevastopol so if you go north uh, from the black sea uh you hit the crimean peninsula and then uh crimea is connected to the ukraine we're going to talk about the ukraine because the ukraine fits right into all of this going on in that region um this base and the south of the Crimean Peninsula that uh, the Russians have in Sebastopol, they have had since the late 18th century when Russia was ruled by the czars. They've had that naval base in their Black Sea fleet. Um, they also have a deep water port, a base in Syria, in Tartus. So if you look at this map and you look at Turkey, you look at the Ukraine from the north, and then you look to the east of the Ukraine, that's all Russia. That's all Russia. And then Russia goes down to uh, their southern uh, uh, border, uh, and uh, Georgia is uh, bordered there, Azerbaijan. Uh, under that, you have Armenia, and under that, you have um, Iran, the northernmost part of Iran. To the west, you have Iraq. And then to the west of Iraq, you have Syria. Now, these borders were drawn by the British government uh, after World War I. Um, many of the people in this region predate these borders. And one group of people that predate these borders who have lived in this area going back to Alexander the Great, uh, prior to Alexander the Great, are the Kurds. The Kurds uh, uh, trace their lineage back to the Medes before the Medo-Persian Empire uh, that Alexander the Great uh, joined together. Uh, they, um, they trace their lineage back to these Medes, and they've lived in these mountains uh, to the east of Turkey for years, thousands of years in these mountains. And uh, there's about 35 million Kurds uh, that live in what is called Kurdistan. And Kurdistan is made up of the Kurds that live in northern Iran, northern Iraq, northern Syria. And there's about 15 million of these uh, Kurds that live in Turkey. The majority of the Kurds of all Kurds that live in Kurdistan, in these three countries, the majority, 12 million, live in the borders of Turkey. Now, um, over 70% of the Kurds in Kurdistan are Sunni Muslims. They're Sunni Muslims. And Turkey doesn't have a problem with the Sunni Muslims. Neither does ISIS. They don't have a problem with those Kurds. It's the other 10 million uh, that 
are the problem because the, those other 10 million, they believe in a lot of other things. And it's funny when you hear all these people criticizing uh, the president. Oh, he abandoned the Kurds or oh, the Kurds are our allies. You know, that's like saying uh, the Chinese are our allies or the blacks are our allies. Well, not the Chinese, but the blacks are a good, uh, a good example because uh, it assumes that just because someone is a certain race, that they all have the same view and they all have the same opinion i mean not all what i'm trying to say is not all kurds are good people not all kurds are bad people not all kurds are our allies not all kurds are our enemies some of them are our enemies though and people talk about the kurds uh like they're all the same 70 percent of them are sunni muslims the other 10 million are zoroastrian yazidi christian and some of them are communists. Some of them are communists and believe in Marxist, Leninist, atheist uh, beliefs about the world. That's what uh, some of them are. And some of them are a problem. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, the, the other thing that I want to talk about is when Obama pulled the troops out of Iraq and he had to finally send them back into Syria to confront ISIS. He did so reluctantly. Because he didn't want to look like he had egg on his face because he pulled him out and then now he has to send them back. So he did so reluctantly. And then when he did send the few troops that he sent back into Syria, he told us that they were not there for a combat role. They were only there for an advise and assist role. Take a listen to this clip. So it's possible that there could be uh, further deployments. Well, uh, Jim, I, I, I don't want to try to predict the future here. But the White House denies this is a presidential flip-flop on ISIS, despite repeated promises from Mr. Obama that U.S. ground forces won't be engaged in combat against the terror group. American boots on the ground in Syria would not only be good for America, uh, but also would be good for Syria. I will not put American boots on the ground in Syria. I will not pursue an open-ended action like Iraq or Afghanistan. With respect to the situation on the ground in Syria, uh, we will not be placing U.S. ground troops to try to control the areas that are part of the conflict inside of no Syria. No combat. Advise, advise and assist is what he said, that that is the reason that uh, they were, he was sending them back. They would not be in a combat role. And now uh, the current president of the United States is pulling these troops back uh, that Obama put there. And, oh, my God, the, the world is on fire. His Syrian policy and uh, his foreign policy is uh, in shambles because of this. Because why? Because we're leaving our allies, the Kurds, the Kurds, we're leaving our allies uh, out to dry and the Turks are coming in to slaughter uh, the Kurds. It's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But you know what? These people are hypocrites. And uh, one of the big, you know, uh, examples that they're hypocrites is that when Obama pulled the troops out of Iraq, he was warned about the Kurds in Iraq, the Kurdish Iraq, uh, the Yazidi, who I just mentioned to, to you. Uh, the Yazidi uh, women were uh, ab 
slaughtered. They were sold into slavery uh, when ISIS uh, came into uh, Iraq, and Obama knew that, and he abandoned them, and none of these people said anything about the Yazidi. Take a listen to this clip. Their plight no longer makes the headlines, but the enslavement and rape of Yazidi women and children by ISIL extremists goes on. Fellow Yazidis marked International Women's Day by urging the world to remember the thousands held in captivity, staging their protest at a camp for the internally displaced in Iraq's northern Kurdish region. We want to tell the whole international community that more than one and a half years on, Yazidi women are still being killed raped and sold as slaves at slave markets. Yeah, and and see, and the thing is, is that, like I said, that uh, the Kurds, uh, the 70% are Sunni, uh, the other uh, 10 million believe a lot of other different things, but within the Kurdish community, their ethnicity, their uh, culture is the the most important thing in their identity, and they all take care of each other uh, because they all see their Kurdish identity as more important than uh, their whatever their religion is. So within the Kurdish uh, community, they have religious tolerance, uh, even though uh, some may be, again, Christian, Yazidi, um, Zoroastrian, um, and even communists. Uh, The communist PKK, who we're going to talk about here in a moment, uh, they uh, were trying to push uh, communism, Marxist communism, uh, for the benefit of the Kurdish people. So even uh, their terrorist activities and things that they uh, do are all to benefit uh, the Kurdish people. Now, uh, like I said, the Turkish government and ISIS they don't they're not trying to persecute Sunni Muslims because Sunni Muslims, they see themselves as as, you know, uh, the same. And we have to protect all, you know, Sunni Muslims. It's actually against their fundamentalist beliefs to kill or to persecute uh, another uh, Sunni Muslim. So, uh, like I said, there's 12 million Sunni uh, uh, Kurds that live within the uh, borders of Turkey, but Turkey, when you when Turkey is moving into northern Syria, and they're fighting uh, uh, Kurds, they're not fighting our allies, the Kurds. They're fighting this communist group called the PKK and other groups that are affiliated with the PKK, like the Y, uh, like the YPG. The YPG is the Syrian. Kurdish People's Protection Unit. And all of these Kurds that live in northern Syria, like I said, the the YPG is the Syrian Kurdish Protection Unit. So they're focused on Kurds that live in Syria. Um, There's different groups that are focused on Kurds that live in in Iraq and different groups that are focused on Kurds that live in Turkey and Iran. And then there's there's groups that are focused on the interest of Kurdistan as a whole. I mean, Kurdistan has tried to uh, to have their own state and their own uh, um, their own Kurdistan uh, state that is recognized by uh, the United Nations as this is Kurdistan, where you look on a map and you see Kurdistan. You don't see Kurdistan on a map on any maps today. But uh, there have been uh, groups that have been lobbying for a Kurdish state, um, a recognized Kurdish state. Uh, since the 1960s 
even before that. So there's different groups within this these areas, uh, and they all have different interests. So to say that all the Kurds are the same and that they're all our allies is ridiculous. Uh, here's a, a clip about the PKK. Take a listen of who these people are, who the Kurds have been fighting for almost 50 years now, and who they're continuing to fight. This is the PKK. And it's listed as a terrorist organization by many countries around the world. To understand why, we need to go back to the 1970s. A group of students led by Abdullah Öcalan came together to set up a Marxist-Leninist region across southeast Turkey. They named their group the PKK, and their aim was to create a greater Kurdish state spreading across neighboring countries. At the time, Turkey was dealing with its own problems of the Cold War. There was escalating violence between left-wing and right-wing groups that eventually led to a military coup in 1980. A year before, Öcalan left to Syria, then later to Lebanon. Here, he established the PKK's first headquarters in the Bekaa Valley, with the support of the Syrian government. In 1984, the PKK began its armed guerrilla campaign against Turkey. It started attacking state officials and civilians across the country. Villages were burned down. That part right there about with the support of the Syrian government, I'm not sure that that's true, but the majority of the stuff in this uh, tape about the PKK is true. And uh, even the point that even the United States has declared the PKK, which is a Kurdish group, they've declared them terrorists. Children were kidnapped, there were suicide bombings, and people were murdered. In the 1990s, the PKK's attacks went beyond the borders of Turkey. There were highly coordinated attacks and illegal demonstrations across Europe, many of which ended in violent clashes with the police. During the same period, the U.S. State Department published numerous reports about the PKK's involvement in organized crime and drug trafficking. These events later led the U.S. government to officially list the PKK as a terrorist organization. Giving in to the ongoing pressure of Turkey, Syria also stopped openly harboring the PKK. This pushed them to move their headquarters to the Kandil Mountains in northern Iraq, just across the border from Turkey, where it remains today. So those are the Kurds. Those are the Kurds that... Uh that Turkey has a problem with, and uh, even the United States has declared them a uh, terrorist organization. Now, it's really funny, over the last uh, week, it, it was a lot of news about Hillary Clinton calling out Tulsi Gabbard and saying that she was a Russian agent because uh, she supports Assad uh, staying in power. She went over, she met with Assad and, uh, and, and the Syrian people who support Assad. Uh, she doesn't support his re regime change. And she has spoken out um, in the last debate. She came out and said that we need to stop these regime regime change wars. And she said it over and over again. It's kind of the central part of her campaign. Um, this is a tape of a CBS News anchor uh, interviewing Tulsi Gabbard and talking about that that policy of, of no more regime change wars. Uh, and that's why Hillary Clinton is calling her a Russian agent, because she doesn't support regime change wars. And take a listen to what uh, this anchor on CBS says to Tulsi Gabbard. 
let's be clear about what this is about. Really, that if uh, anyone stands up and speaks out to end the regime change war policies our country has had for so long, the likes of which we've seen waged in Iraq, Libya, and ongoing in Syria, uh, we will be labeled as uh, foreign agents. We will be labeled as traitors to our country. So really what this is, this is a message to every veteran in this country who has put their life on the line to serve our country, to every single American who believes strongly that we must end this long-standing foreign policy of being the world's police and waging these regime change wars, which is really the legacy of Hillary Clinton, then we are traitors to the nation that we love. Uh, you, this is despicable on so many levels. When you say re regime change wars, what do you mean by that? <laughs> when you say regime change wars, what do you mean by that? And not to mention that she actually she actually says what she means. She tells you exactly what she means when in the statement and this this idiot who is a gatekeeper on CBS says, what do you mean by regime change wars? This is what she means by regime change wars, lady. About really that if uh, anyone stands up and speaks out to end the regime change war policies our country has had for so long, the likes of which we've seen waged in Iraq, Libya, and ongoing in Syria, uh, we will be labeled Iraq. as... Uh, Libya and Syria. That's what she's talking about. Iraq. We changed the regime there. And chaos broke out. In Libya. I'm going to talk about this more in the next episode. In Libya, we changed the regime. Gaddafi and his son told Obama, if you remove me, then these people, these terrorists who are selling slaves in Libya right now are going to take over. That's who she's talking about. In Syria, in Egypt, when uh, Hasi Mubarak was, uh, when, when Obama said he must go, the Muslim Brotherhood took over in Egypt and in Syria. It's funny because, you know, Abu Bakr sounds like a fake name to me, al-Baghdadi. The guy from Baghdad, Abu Bakr, Abu Bakr, who was the leader of the Sunni Muslims in the divide between the Sunni and the Shia, Muhammad's right-hand man from 1,400 years ago, this guy who creates Islamic State in Syria, happens to be named Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi? You believe that? <laughs> and now he's dead. And how is that going to change the fact that there hasn't been a Sunni caliphate uh, since the Ottoman Empire, and the Sunni want the caliphate. They want their caliphate. And who takes over in Syria if Assad goes? If Assad is, is pushed out of Syria? Who took over in Iraq? Now Iraq is still... Uh, in chaos and uh, and 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 it is a problem area because we changed the regime there in Libya. Who took over? Who takes over in Syria if Assad leaves? And that's why they're all, all roads lead to Russia because Russia has a vested interest in Assad staying. He had the, Russia has a deep water port in Tartars. He supports Assad staying. He's not going to allow uh, Assad to leave.
And that's how Russia became the bad guy. And the Ukraine. We're going to talk about the Ukraine more in uh, our next episode. Uh, this episode is long enough already. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. I have so much more that I want to say. It's not even like I have so much more that I want to say. And it's not going to be long before I get episode uh, 48 out. Um, I, I'll get it out by the end of the week. And it's going to be a continuation of what we talked about here. Um, really, really crazy world right now. And I want to help to uh, bring it into focus for you. Uh, thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share the podcast. Um, please go to the website, according to Sam, the number two.com. You can follow the podcast on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, uh, by doing a search for according to Sam, the number two.com. Ah. So who's going to be the next boogeyman that takes over for, you know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi now? Who is going to be the next leader of the Sunni Caliphate? I want to have nothing to do with this. I'm glad that our president is doing what he's doing. The Russians should be uh, forming an alliance with Turkey and they should be... um, working together because that's their sphere of influence that's their region let them take care of that mess Uh, we'll be back with episode 48 um see you guys soon have a good one bye